This week on Physically Spiritual, we've come to the summit of the series on food with the Eucharist. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. So this episode on the Eucharist is probably going to be a two-parter. So there'll be a cut and then there'll be another episode coming out next week. But where we've come from in this series, we started out by looking at a Catholic worldview to lay some groundworks. Then we picked up and went up the ladder of being, going from soil to plants to animals to talk about how these things contribute to food. And then we looked at human appetite, satiety, digestion, and diet. Basically what makes us hungry, what makes us full, what happens to the food once we eat it, and based on all that, what should we eat? And all this has been leading up to this point, this point of looking at the Holy Eucharist, that God gives himself to us as food. Now, everything in this series has been sort of general principles, right? So applying it to your life, you need to make some, some decisions to take some thoughts, right? How, how you should eat will be affected by whether you want to gain weight, whether you want to lose weight. What's your personal history? What is uh, your current situation? How old you are? What's your state in life? so on and so forth. So hopefully this series has been helpful to give you a lot of general principles that then you can think about and, and apply and understand then, well, what, what should you do? So now let's talk a little bit about the Eucharist. First is, what is the Eucharist? This is the, the kind of key quote from the Catechism. Now, this episode isn't going to primarily be like a basic catechesis on the Eucharist and, and what it means and, and the basic Catholic teaching. What I want to do here is I want to take it kind of deeper. I want to explore some themes that we've actually talked about in previous episodes about the Eucharist on Physically Spiritual. And I also want to do just a little bit of, um, of exploration anthropologically, philosophically, theologically, to try to, to deepen us from this basic catechesis of what the Eucharist is and how we understand it and how we explain it to people who aren't Catholic. But let's just start out with the basic definition. This is paragraph 1374 of the Catechism. It says, The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude the other types of presence as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense, that is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God, and man makes himself holy and entirely present. So Jesus is present in the Eucharist in a way he's not present anywhere else. Now this doesn't exclude God's presence in other things. God is in a sense present to all his creation. Now God's not, God's not substantially present to his creation because uh, that would be a form of pantheism or panentheism. God's present to his creation as its cause. Right? God holds it in being. God's also present to all of creation by his, his knowledge, by his relationship to all things. And then God is, is present to all things by his power. Right? It's, everything's in God's providence. But God's not substantially present in everything, nor is everything identifiable with God. 
So in a very special way, in the Eucharist, when the priest prays over the bread and wine at Mass, these the substance of these simple items of bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity, or the whole Christ, in a way that's, that's unique from the rest of the created order. Now, this process that I just um, alluded to here is called transubstantiation. It's that the accidents of the bread and wine stay the same, so that the way that it smells, the way it looks, the way it feels, the way it tastes, all that stays the same, but the substance of them changes, meaning the deeper identity, the nature of them, become that of Jesus himself. And this is, is also unique in the created order. In almost every other case, when something changes substantially, it's when it also changes accidentally. Right? If, if there's a, an accumulation of substantial changes in my life, meaning you, or an accumulation of accidental changes, I'm sorry, in my life, meaning you start just taking parts of me away, <laughs> like you cut off my arm and then you cut off one of my legs and then you eventually, you know, keep cutting pieces away, there's eventually going to be a substantial change that happens, right? This, this body that is me eventually just becomes a corpse that's not me anymore. <laughs> uh, and this is the way nature typically works. The, the Eucharist is the opposite of this, right? All the accidents say the same but the substance changes. And this is an act of grace. This is a supernatural effect of the create the new order that Christ sets up in his passion, death, and resurrection in his Paschal mystery. So we're in a season in the church here in the United States of what's called the National Eucharistic Revival. There was a survey that Pew Research did back, I think, in 2017 that showed that 69% of all self-identified Catholics so that they believed the bread and wine used at Mass are not Jesus substantially, but are in fact symbols of the body, blood of Jesus. Now of these, 47% of these respondents actually didn't know what the church taught. So they actually believed that the church taught that this bread and wine were just symbols, or they, they just said they didn't know what the church taught. About 22% of the respondents knew what the church taught, but actually disagreed with the church teaching. I Meaning they, they knew that the church taught transubstantiation, but said that they believed that the Eucharist is just a symbol. This means that only 31% believed in this idea of transubstantiation. And all of this obviously has sparked a lot of reaction in the church of people saying, how could this be the case that, that so few people in the church that identify as Catholics actually understand what's the case, what the Catholic Church teaching is about the Eucharist. One of the causes for this, and I know it's not the only cause, but, but part of it that I want to focus on is what I would like to call the scandal of frequent communion. This isn't a scandal that people go to communion frequently, that the church uh, encourages us to do this. But this is the scandal that that so many people receive the Eucharist with a high level of frequency, but it has very little effect in their life. What I mean by this is that, that in the Eucharist, we have the body, blood, soul, and divinity, the whole Christ. So in a sense, all the power that created the whole universe, God's omnipotence is present in that Eucharist. And if we believe that the whole Christ 
is present in the Eucharist and we receive that, we take that into ourselves. And yet somehow God's omnipotence, meaning all powerfulness, unlimited power has no effect. It doesn't move us at all. What that does is that testifies against the teaching that we proclaim. I'll say that again. If we receive all the power of the Eucharist and our life doesn't change at all, this testifies against the claims that we make. So let's take a deeper look at this. Why doesn't the Eucharist change people more when they receive it? Well, one answer is that sometimes it does. Sometimes the Eucharist does change people's lives frequently. And other times I think the Eucharist has effects in it that might not be obvious, right? It might sustain us in grace. It might not change us a lot, but it might also prevent us from backsliding, from going in the wrong direction. But we have to recognize also that the sacraments aren't magic. If magic were real, if magic, um, if magic had an effect on us, magic is a force from the outside. So think of it this way. If, if, if magic were affecting you, you would have to, to consciously and willfully act against it to prevent it from happening. You know, imagine like a sorcerer casting a spell on you to make you move your arm. Well, that, that movement would be, it would be compelling you from outside of your person, meaning it would be an, an exerting a certain amount of force on you from outside of you. The sacraments are the exact opposite of this. The sacraments are not magic. The sacraments are vehicles for grace. And grace comes from the inside out. And one of the, the symptoms of this is that, that we don't need to resist grace for it not to work. All we need to do is not cooperate with grace. So grace isn't coercive. It isn't forceful. It doesn't exert a force on our person in order to try to make us do anything. It doesn't, it doesn't hold us or something like that. What grace does is, is, it, is it comes into our person, into our soul in such a way that it gives us the power, it gives us the, the energy, it gives us the motivation, it gives us the ability to do things that we wouldn't be capable of without grace. But this requires us doing it. Right? The, the, the working of the grace and the action of our will are in a way simultaneous. Now God initiates the gift. This is important. We're not Pelagians. We're not saving ourselves by our work. God initiates the gift. He gives us the gift of faith. And also initiates the, the good work in us. But in order for that to take effect, it requires our, our, full, our full consent, our full acting with. Uh, so, so in order for the, the, the grace of the sacraments to work in us, it requires a full cooperation, a full collaboration, of a full acting with what God is doing. This means that if, if we're receiving in, in the moment in an unmindful way, not trying to cooperate with what's happening, not, not receiving it, not uh, wholeheartedly entering in, we're in a way putting up a, a barrier to God's action working in us. And, and also in a more distant way, if, if we have barriers between us and God, meaning my own sin and my attachments to sin, these things that bind my will, those also become barriers to God's grace in my life. 
there's a, an ancient teaching that's helpful to consider when thinking about how this works. This uh, came up in the midst of a controversy in the church called the Donatist controversy. And this is something that St. Augustine was responding to. This is at a time in the church, we're talking in the 4th and 5th centuries AD, the late Roman Empire. So there was a period of time when the church was being persecuted by the empire. And then there were certain people that then uh, renounced their faith as a result of that persecution. And some of these people that renounced the faith were, were priests. So the question was, if there was a, a priest that renounced the faith, were their sacraments still valid? Or another way to frame this would be, does the holiness or the, the, the specific state of the minister affect the validity of the sacrament? If my priest becomes an apostate, do I need to be rebaptized? is practically what this question means. Or are the sins that they've forgiven actually forgiven, or do I have to bring those back to confession? So on and so forth. And the way that that St. Augustine approached this problem was by making a, a subtle distinction. And this distinction is actually, um, it's in our, our modern catechism in paragraph 1128. Paragraph 1128 says this, this is the meaning of the church's affirmation that the sacraments act ex opere operato, literally by the very fact of the actions being performed, by virtue of the saving work of Christ accomplished once for all, it follows that the sacrament is not wrought by the righteousness of either the celebrant or the recipient, but by the power of God. From the moment that a sacrament is celebrated in accordance with the intention of the church, the power of Christ and his spirit acts in and through it, independently of the personal holiness of the minister. So this is that ex opere operato, from the, the work worked. But this paragraph ends with this sentence. It says, nevertheless, the fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. The fruits of the sacrament also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. I want that to sink in for a moment. I think this, this uh, sentence is, um, holds the, the linchpin, <laughs> the linchpin of the Eucharistic revival, the linchpin of the, uh, the whole new evangelization in the church, the linchpin of, of bringing about the kingdom of God. Because what the catechism is saying here is, is that that the sacrament is valid based on the work of Christ as expressed through the ministry of the church. So if that priest is validly ordained, intends to do what the church means and teaches, and then is using the right form and matter, meaning it's unleavened bread and wine, and then the form is the prayer of consecration, as long as those elements are present, that bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But the ex opere operato effect of the Eucharist is happening on the altar. Meaning the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Now the fruit of this sacrament, for me personally, right? There's a fruit of that sacrament in the whole church universal. There's a way in which that sacrament releases grace into the world in, a, in supernatural abundance that has an effect beyond what's happening just there in the church. But for me individually, how much that's going to change my life 
meaning literally sins that I, I did commit, I don't commit anymore. Attachments, ways that I was connected to the world in which I'm now uh, free in Christ. Ways in which my, my heart uh, was turned away from the Lord and is now turned toward the Lord, right? How much that Eucharist actually changes me, it's, it's this ex opere operantis is the expression that St. Augustine used. And this is summarized in this sentence. The fruits of the sacraments also depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. My disposition affects how much that Eucharist changes me. So in essence, you might think of it this way. The bread and wine become the whole Christ, the ex, the ex opere operato. How much am I going to become like Christ? That's the ex opere operantis, and that requires my disposition. So in this case, the holiness of the minister does affect the ex opere operantis, because that minister is, uh, is the leader of this community of faith, and so he's leading his people in order to receive that sacrament in a certain way. And actually, his holiness is, is also being expressed in the actual celebration of the sacraments. Right? We're, we're receiving something from the minister by being present as, as he's leading the worship. Right? So, so the, the holiness of the minister does affect my subjective disposition. And you've probably had this experience before. You've been at masses where the, the priest's disposition and, and his life enable you to enter in in a deeper way and receive more, then you've probably been at masses where the disposition and the, 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 the minister's life actually has prevented you from entering fully into what's happening there. This, uh, this disposition of receiving the grace that God is offering has, has layers to it. Because it isn't just a matter of being present and trying really hard. Our, our will isn't just a, a force in the moment, a, a purely unconditioned choosing machine. <laughs> so, so disposing ourselves to receive the Eucharist isn't a matter of just approaching the altar and sort of pushing, of trying, of, of efforting the grace into us, of just being really holy and squeezing our hands together and closing our eyes and pinching our face and, and really trying to let God act. Right? It's important to try to receive with a whole heart with devotion to not be lackadaisical, to express devotion, to be reverent. But there's only so much your will is going to open up in that moment apart from a supernatural act of God's grace. Part of that disposition we're bringing into the Eucharist is we're bringing our whole life to that Eucharist. So there is an immediate preparation, that moment of receiving, that trying to give ourselves to that moment, but then there's also a approximate preparation. We're entering into a liturgy, a prayer of the church, which is preparing us to receive what's being offered at the end of that liturgy in the sacrament. But then we're also bringing our whole life into that liturgy. And that liturgy presents to us a style, a structure, a rhythm of life that by living it out throughout our whole life, we're then disposing our heart. We're freeing being freed from sin, we're being freed from attachments so that our whole will can become like God's. And by bringing that, that transformed self into the liturgy, we're disposed to, to receive the grace that's being offered there in a whole new way. So this linchpin of, of how we increase 
the ex opere operantis of the sacrament, the fruitfulness of that sacrament in my life. How do I increase that? That's the linchpin of this whole thing. That's the linchpin, I believe, of the new evangelization. That's the linchpin of the Eucharistic revival. Now, I want to shift. So I think in order to more deeply answer this question, we need to take a, a tour through uh, human history, human anthropology, and the historical setting through which the Eucharist came, then understand human nature in a deeper way, and then to understand how the Eucharist appeals to human nature. And I think this will give us a new deeper insight into how to st- structure our, our lives in a Eucharistic manner in order to dispose ourselves to receive the grace that God's offering us in the sacrament. So what does the Eucharist say to human nature? If we look at our our most ancient ancestors, they were constantly asking the question and trying to solve for survival. And food was survival. Food was a scarce resource. They had to hunt to to kill animals to get food, to gather uh, berries, roots, things from nature in order to survive. And these hunter-gatherer peoples gathered into tribes, into communities, into bands. Uh, Some say up to 100 people could be in this sort of a tribal situation and live off a certain amount of territory. And this this group of people, they, they provided with one another safety, a social structure to live in, a community to raise their children in, the ability to uh, differentiate tasks and roles. Right? So, so some people would go out and hunt, some people would gather, some people would take care of the camp or, or their permanent settlement or wherever they lived. But they were able to then um, to account and care for each other in a way that was beyond what they could just do on their own. They provided a certain level of safety and security as they relied on the environment for survival. Now, now humans figured out thousands of years ago that they could start to well, gather the seeds from the crops that they were, were finding out in nature and scatter them around, and they could start to, to make more of the stuff appear that provided them with food. Or those animals that they hunted, they realized they could then maybe hold them in a, in a pen and, and understand that they could enter into a symbiotic relationship and start to have not just animals that they hunted, but also then animals that were to some level domesticated to live in a symbiotic relationship with them. So they, they made this, this shift from a, a hunter-gatherer lifestyle into a more agrarian lifestyle, whether they were, were herdsmen, where they had flocks that, that moved around to then live off uh, the soil, to live off the, the grass, the, the environment, or whether they planted crops and had fields and had plant agriculture or a mixture of both. But what this enabled our ancestors to do was then to organize in a more complex way. By using human ingenuity, by using especially human community, and really if you look at the human species compared to other uh, other species of animals around the world, one of our, you might say, cheat codes for survival was our, our ability to, to create this kind of complex social network. And in the midst of the social network, um, what's, what's happening is it's also then enabling us to, um, to, to really lean in on the key asset of our intelligence, our rationality, our ability to, to create, 
for symbolic reasoning uh, of language. And then as a community, um, you're not just coming up with an idea to survive in the moment, but you're actually uh, discovering new knowledge that then can be shared with the other members of the community. And it becomes, over time, it becomes wisdom. So there's this sort of uh, accumulation of, of understanding of knowledge that, um, that the, the community has that then is passed down to the next generation. You might think of it this way. Other creatures in nature have, have a, uh, if we could use a, like a computer analogy, a computer has hardware, that's the physical stuff. The, the motherboard, the, the disk drive, then it also has software. This is the code that runs in that machinery. So most animals, they have hardware, and in that hardware is, is a genetic code, and that's sort of a base software level for that animal. So that the animal runs on a certain level of, of instinct, and then there's, there's some basic behavior that's downloaded at times from a tribe or from a parent to their child, where the, the animal then um, can, can adapt to its environment more quickly because of the understanding that it gains from other animals of its type. But humans in a unique way, while we do have the same kind of hardware layer and that base software layer, like the, the, the level of programming that you have in the BIOS of a computer, right? Kind of the, the basic um, hard programmed software, we also have another layer of software, right? And this is provided to us because of our rationality. So we as humans have this kind of consistent software upgrade that's happening in our mind that we can share with one another and then can be downloaded into our offspring. And this helps to, to explain a lot, of, um, a lot of why we as, as humans uh, as young humans especially, come out so differently. We're one of the least developed animals at the time of birth, right? There's, there's some basic physiological reasons for this, like, um, like the fact that we stand upright, so there's a, a slendering of the female hips, that then if the human head were bigger at birth, the mother would die, <laughs> right? So, so our physiology requires uh, that we're out of our mothers at a, a kind of a smaller size. So we're then less capable. But then what it also implies is there's, there's something important that happens to us as a human outside of the womb and the experience of our environment and then the, 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 the wisdom, the knowledge that we're then downloading from our, from our parents and from our ancestors through our parents. And this is where we, as, as, as a human creature, um, sort of went all in with for our survival, with understanding, but not just understanding as an individual, but understanding as a community, right? Where, where roles could be, could be specified and then the, the knowledge could be passed on from generation to generation. So in a sense, while, while animals are in this, other animals are in this cycle of kind of being version 1.0, and, and the hardware gets slowly upgraded by adaptation to the environment, by the evolutionary process. We as humans have constant and rapid software upgrades because our body isn't just reacting to our environment, but we also have a, have a mind 
that's that's learning and coming to understand in a way that other animals don't. So while while my body's still sort of progressing at the rate of every other animal in creation, right? My mind is on version 1,532 or something like that. <laughs> um, because of this constant intergenerational software upgrade that happens as a result of human ingenuity. All right. <laughs> really long diatribe there. I kind of went on longer than I want to, but hopefully this kind of gives you an understanding of <laughs> ancient human history and how we're different than other animals. We're going to make this episode on the Eucharist a two-part. Uh, it's gone pretty long, and I want you to be able to uh, continue on with the rest of your day. <laughs> so tune in next week for the conclusion of this conclusion to the food series on the Eucharist. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.